Two Tribes is a two-part documentary series for RTE looking at the history of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and their roots in the Irish Civil War and how an intense rivalry gave way eventually to a coalition government. Now we bring you extended interviews with participants in the series. Mary Hannafin's family is rooted in Fianna Fáil, going right back to the party's foundation. Mary Hannafin, thank you very much indeed for coming to this interview. Tell me about you and Fianna Fáil. First of all, what kind of family did you grow up in? What kind of folklore did you absorb? I was born and reared and continue to live in a Fianna Fáil family and Fianna Fáil environment. Um, we go back as far as 1920 when my grandfather was a Sinn Féin councillor in Longford. And then he moved to Tipperary, uh, where he then was with Fianna Fáil and set up Fianna Fáil in um, Thurlis and invited De Valera down to open the sugar factory. Uh, to set up a sugar factory, which was a huge contribution to the town at the time. Uh, so from then on, um, my grandfather, my father, my aunt, my cousin, my brother, uh, have all been county councillors in Tipperary, uh, three of them being chairman of the county council. Uh, and of course, I'm on the county council now in Dunleary, um, having also served as a TD and um, as a government minister, and my father was in the Senate. So I think we've covered all the angles over 100 years. You were probably too young to have met or known Eamon de Valera. What sense did you absorb from your family about the kind of man he was and why was he so revered? I actually think there's a huge kind of leadership regard in Ireland. I think it goes back to Parnell, to Michael Davis, that Irish people just love a good leader that they can look up to. Um, equally, de Valera, Michael Collins. Uh, and that was the same in our family as well. Um, my father was chairman of the county council, so met de Valera, was at his inauguration. Um, Sinead Ban de Valera looked after my mother, who wasn't well at the time. So he was very much seen as this austere, big leader. But he had achieved so much, you see, he was the link to 1916. He was the link back to the foundation of Fianna Fáil. So for that reason, he was to be respected. It wasn't as a personality. It wasn't that he was known as an individual. It was really what he stood for and what he did. Uh, and we respected that in the family. Now, that's obviously a very admirable series of, of links with Deb, but he was also so associated with the treaty, uh, rejecting the treaty, associated with the civil war. Um, your opponents might say he was partly responsible for the civil war. So it wasn't all glory and happiness. But see, there was no question in my family growing up but that he was on the right side. Um, and we were on his side. Uh, so when he was against the treaty and Fianna Fáil was set up as the anti-treaty party, that's the way it was. And that's the way we accepted it the whole way through. Um, and you were identified as being with Fianna Fáil, you were known in the town, in the county, around, um, and you also knew then who the opposition was. So what is Fianna Fáil? What was, what was, what is Fianna Fáil? Well, Fianna Fáil is a political party, but it, it's a movement. It's local, it's national, it's community, it's local elections, it's national elections, it's winning, it's losing, it's delivering for the local people. For us, it's a way of life. That's what Fianna Fáil is. And it's a party which has been, it, it considers itself or certainly did as the natural party or government, the party of power, power to look after your own. It was always about power to look after people power to improve your community. And that's why people actually got involved, not just as elected people, but as common members. 
They joined because they felt this was the way of making their community better. This was the way of challenging your councillor and getting the local work done, challenging your TD and getting the national things delivered. Uh, so it's not just about being involved at a national level. It's about opening your door. And all my childhood, our home was an open door for people coming in, getting assistance with forms, get, get, getting advice, getting things done. It was a permanent clinic. Um, and that's what Fianna Fáil always was through the years. And what about your opponents, your main opponents, Fine Gael? What was your sense of, of that party? Fianna Fáil were always on the ground, local, community-based. We saw Fine Gael as being a bit kind of higher up, looking after the bigger farmers, the bigger shopkeepers. Uh, they were very much our opposition. Um, you fought bitterly at every election. And you also could identify who was Fianna Fáil and who was Fianna Gael and what they stood for. And near the twain would meet politically. Was there a sense that you felt they were looking down on you, but you were better than them? Uh, we were better than them because we went into government and we delivered for people. Uh, we delivered houses. We delivered education. We delivered on the ground locally. People would say, 50 years after my grandfather died, your grandfather got me a house. And in those days, that was what political involvement went and what Fianna Fáil did. There was never a sense that Fianna Gael could do the same things. There was an intense rivalry, particularly in the earlier years, um, and indeed in the 80s as well, which we'll come on to. What, what, what did they tell you about the blue shirts, for instance? Well, you didn't talk about the blue shirts in our house. And the blue shirts were very much an entity nationally, but also in Thurlis. And there was a night where my family, my father's family, he was only a child, were warned that the blue shirts were coming to burn them out. And the children were lifted out of the house and brought to sanctuary uh, up the road. And forever, we revered and respected the family, the Gradens that brought them in. But that's who the blue shirts were. And I remember one time Morris Manning was on RTE speaking about the blue shirts. My father was so incensed, he actually rang in and said they weren't boy scouts to tell the story of exactly who the blue shirts were. Fine Gael people would say they were there and they protected Fine Gael's capacity to hold meetings, to hold public addresses at a time when they were being attacked by some of Fianna Fáil's friends who had just been let out of jail by de Valera. No, the tactics employed by the blue shirts in the 30s were the fascist tactics. I'm not saying they were fascists, but they were the tactics that they employed. And that generated a huge fear amongst people. Ordinary people living their lives, trying to participate in their own community and in their own local political parties, be it Fianna Fáil. But they saw it as something very, very threatening. And I believe that's what they were. Your father, the late Senator Des Hannafin, was very close, I think, to Jack Lynch, a uh, close advisor, fundraiser for Jack Lynch. How was that relationship? Um, Jack Lynch put great confidence in my father, who was a recovering alcoholic, and Jack Lynch put him in charge of fundraising, um, which was a huge vote of confidence uh, for him at that time and certainly helped him uh, to recover, to stay off the drink for 50 years and then to build a political career. It became a very personal friendship as well. When Jack Lynch was coming to Thurlis uh, to attend a monster final, he'd have lunch in our house beforehand. Uh, so there was that very great fondness as well as a political regard as well. What kind of money was your late father able to raise for Fianna Fáil? lots of money. Um, he, he had a way of doing it which was open. My father came after the years of Taka 
And Tucker had been very secretive and people questioned where the money was coming from and what it was about. My father set up an office in the Burlington Hotel and he put up on the notice board, Fianna Fáil fundraising office, Fianna Fáil fundraising dinner. So people knew what was happening and he also ensured that the money was always accounted for and that the books were always audited and accounted for. So whatever money came in was very open. I think that helped in later years with Fianna Fáil as well. Are you sure you can describe that as an open form of fundraising? I mean, people went there uh, in secret, surreptitiously, uh, discreetly, certainly. I mean, there was never any question of finding out who went to that office and who gave how much. Well, it was never secretive insofar as it's in a hotel. Now, that's not secret. Um, if it's written up on a board when the meeting is and when the dinner is, that's certainly not secret. Um, and even when Mr. Hockey um, wanted to take back over the fundraising and to get the books from him, my father refused to give him the books until they were properly audited. And he was effectively sidelined by Charlie Hockey. Why? I think sidelined is a nice name for sacking. Uh, he was sacked from the fundraising. Um, because my father was a fundraiser for the Fianna Fáil party, and not for the Fianna Fáil leader, um, and Mr. Hockey wanted to get control of it. What did you think when Charlie Hockey became leader of Fianna Fáil, defeating George Colley, who would have been a friend of your father, I suppose, and an associate, uh, by a fairly narrow margin? I, I remember we were all devastated. My father was devastated. Um, and he was a close friend of George Colley's, uh, a man of great integrity um, and highly respected, uh, and we really worried about the party at that time. But my father always took the view, as have I done since, that the Fianna Fáil party is bigger than any one man. And you stay there and you work within it and you continue to do what the party was set up to do, not what any one person tells you to do. Did it ever cross your mind or his mind to join the Progressive Democrats when Des O'Malley and Mary Harney broke with Fianna Fáil? We were both actively uh, canvassed to join. The Progressive Democrats, Des O'Malley personally, um, invited me to join. And it was very attractive at the time because a lot of people who would have been in our circle uh, were joining the Progressive Democrats. Um, but again, we decided, no, our tradition, our background, our belief, our family was in Fianna Fáil and not in any new party. You stood up for Des O'Malley uh, in a vote in the National Executive when he was infamously uh, expelled. expelled for conduct unbecoming after abstaining on a vote on the family planning bill. Why did you take that position? I, I will never forget that night. Uh, it was a very, very tense night. Um, Mr. Hockey wanted a unanimous vote of the National Executive. I was just an Ogre member. I, I was very young. But it was the wrong thing to do to expel Des O'Malley. And even though he was calling for a unanimous vote, it was a roll call vote, so it was all in the open, and I was the first person to vote against the expulsion. Um, it was very tense, hot, heavy. I remember coming out actually in tears out of the meeting. Um, but the repercussions, I think, were the establishment of the Progressive Democrats and also the loss of Des O'Malley to Fianna Fáil. Tell me about your experience as a, as, as a politician seeking election. Your first constituency, I think, was Dublin South East. Um, Mr. Hockey, in fact, added me to a ticket in Rathmines in 1985. Um, and I was elected there to the council and spent six very happy years on Dublin Corporation. Um, and then I realised that the greater opening um, was going to be in Dunleary, uh, where I've been teaching um, since 1980. And Bertie Ahern was the one who really encouraged me. 
uh, to move um, and to move to that constituency. And of course, he was right, um, which I did, and then got elected there in 97. Um, and I've, I've always been very fortunate, fortunate in being elected and then being very fortunate and appointed to a number of very prestigious positions. Finn in the 80s used to refer to Dunleary as the premier constituency because they had three seats out of five. Now, it's a constituency that is famously liberal in, in where social issues are concerned. You wouldn't necessarily have come from a political line that was uh, of that view. So how did you, how did you succeed in Dunleary? And was, to this day, people say to me, how did you ever get elected in Dunleary, you know? Um, well, I've been teaching 17 years um, in Blackrock before I was ever elected. Um, so I had that reputation, could I call it, behind me and that involvement in a lot of different ways uh, with young people, with their families. Um, I, I suppose came from a line which mightn't have been Dunleary, Fianna Fáil, but was respected. Um, and the first time I rang, people knew how I had stood up um, for Des O'Malley uh, and how my father had stood up. And I think people, no matter what their beliefs are, they do like to elect people whom they know will represent them well. Um, I think they like to represent, uh, have people represent them who are educated, who are articulate, um, and people who will stand their ground. What about the, the nuts and bolts of getting elected? Because you were in there with one of the big beasts of Fianna Fáil, David Andrews, uh, in a constituency where you weren't necessarily assured of getting a second seat. So how was that organised? In fairness to Bertie O'Hearn, I mean, one of his great assets is kind of election management. Um, and the 97 election was very carefully choreographed. The numbers of candidates in each constituency, polling for the year prior to the election, uh, watching to see who might get elected, who wouldn't, taking people off a ticket, adding people onto the ticket. And then the very big uh, move and very generous move on behalf of sitting TDs was to split the constituency and to send out a letter inviting people to vote, not for the sitting, TD, in that, my case, David Andrews, but to give their number one vote to me, which was very courageous, it was fantastic planning, and it worked. It went wrong, though, when you and David Andrews' son, Barry, both insisted on standing in what was called the earthquake election in 2011. Yeah, that was an awful election. I mean, the atmosphere was colder than the weather, and the weather was so cold at that time. Um, it's a very bad election, and I suppose both of us had been elected there. I had been the poll chopper for a number of years. I couldn't see any reason why I should be the one to move. Um, I was the one who had got the first seat. Uh, and as a consequence, both of us lost, um, which, which was very unfortunate, yeah. If you were to revisit that election, would you do anything differently? Yeah, I'd get Barry Andrews to move to Dublin South. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, no, you, you talked about Bertie Ahern and his, 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 his skill at managing elections. Um, what about him as a party leader? Um, how did you view his arrival into that position? I was very supportive of Bertie when he got elected as party leader um, and then was so proud to be there in 97 to actually vote for him for Taoiseach. Uh, he very much had his finger on the pulse. He knew people in every constituency and he knew what was happening in every constituency. He would also watch every programme, listen to every radio programme, knew what people were thinking. If ever there was a crisis going on, for example, with nurses, I remember, at one stage, a lot of people ringing in his office, all kind of complaining or uh, wanting their views heard, and he would sit down that night and ring them all back. Um, so that's what the difference was. It wasn't just a leader who was austere, like de Valera, 
Um, but he was a man who was very much on the ground. And did he give you much direct personal encouragement and guidance when you joined his team at a fairly senior level, first, I think, as party whip and then as minister? From the time I moved to Dunleary, he took me under his wing and gave me great personal guidance. Um, it was very rare at that time to be appointed a junior minister in your first term. Uh, and I was only two and a half years elected uh, when he appointed me as junior minister for children, uh, which was totally unexpected by everybody uh, at the time. Um, and then as chief whip, obviously, I worked very closely with him. Um, and that was the time then that my husband, uh, Eamon, died. Um, and he could not have been more kind and more supportive to me. And then appointed me as Minister for Education. Did he give you your head as Minister for Education or were there certain uh, guiding principles like keeping the unions on side? How did he deal with you in that sense? I, actually, in each position, uh, he gave guidance. Uh, when I was Minister for Children, his main concern was to get the children um, off the streets as homeless children and to make sure that they were looked after in families. And that was my instructions. Um, when I was government chief whip, obviously it was about balancing between the independents and ourselves and keeping the, the government in, in place. Uh, and then as Minister for Education, um, my first instruction was you're to go to the conferences. Um, so you're to be there, you're to be there with the unions um, and just get on with the job. What about when things got a little rougher then for Bertie Ahern? Um, he resigned, I think, in 2008 uh, at the height of the evidence of, in the tribunal. What was, your, what was your view on all of that? I mean, he wasn't the only one who was queried about the acceptance of donations, uh, be it the dig out because of his family situation, whatever, but it didn't look well, did it? No, but I was happy to defend him. Um, and that was the time when lots of people were running for cover uh, and who wouldn't go on radio and television programmes. Um, and I know I got a name for being somebody who would go out to bat, but I've always taken the view that the public need to know and the public should be told what is happening, what the view is, uh, and to hear every side of the story. And I was happy to do that. Did you often or many times or ever feel that you were being asked to defend the indefensible? Sometimes I felt that I was always being asked and that other people wouldn't do it. People who are, in fact, more senior than I um, wouldn't go out. And that was not only in relation to Bertie, but also in relation to the, um, the recession at the time and the crash in the government. Um, but it, you have a responsibility as an elected representative to answer and also to be able to tell people what's going on. But what about the idea of defending somebody, defending a colleague, albeit your party leader and Taoiseach, who's come up with a story at a tribunal that he won money on horses, which a lot of people, your ordinary man or woman in the street, would find very hard to, to, to believe. Yeah, but I, think I believe in the integrity of Bertie Ahern. Um, and if you believe in someone and something, then you will go out uh, and defend them. And he also had been exceptionally kind to me. And I think whether you're in private life, personal life, or in public life, you should remember those people. So is it your view uh, in general, uh, of Bertie Ahern, that he effectively didn't do anything wrong? I, I believe him to be a man of integrity. You know, I know there were mistakes made along the way, but I don't think he was the corrupt person that people tried to paint him to be. Do you believe that he took money from people that, in a way that was unwise? I know that there were a lot of decisions that were made that were unwise. I mean, I don't know what the tribunal kind of knows, um, I don't know, but he was, remember, never found guilty uh, of anything illegal or corrupt. 
What about his relationship with his other ministers? I'm thinking particularly of the Ahern McCreevy relationship when Charlie McCreevy was Minister for Finance. As somebody who observed that at close quarters, what were your impressions? You see, you had two excellent politicians, um, two fantastic ministers, um, but I suppose there was a personality clash there. Um, and Charlie McCreevy was a fantastic minister for finance. And I'm sure he resented being sent off to Brussels. The one that I was probably most involved with was when the individualization came in, in the tax. Um, because that was a shock to the system uh, for an awful lot of people who were working and looking after children at home, uh, who were not go now going to get recognition in the tax system. Um, and I remember standing on the floor of the Cordia Fall dinner, actually talking to the Taoiseach the night after the budget and kind of saying, this has to be changed. You know, we have to give recognition uh, to these women. Um, and I went out and I spoke about it um, and it happened. Did Bertie Hearn give you a, a nod in the sense of encourage, encouraging you to come out in opposition to what McCreevy was doing? Um, after I had said it that night at the, at the dinner, yes. Yeah. Why did Charlie McCreevy end up as Ireland's commissioner in Europe? I think he was a loss as Minister for Finance. I think he was a fantastic minister, or commissioner, but he was a loss um, as Minister for Finance. Did he go or was he pushed? Oh, I've no doubt he was pushed. I mean, I never saw Charlie McCreevy come out and say, I'd love to be commissioner. No, I've, I've no doubt he was pushed, um, and that was a loss. It's nice to have somewhere to go if you're being pushed, uh, particularly to be commissioner, um, but I'm not sure that it benefited the government at the time. Why was he pushed? Um, because of that divergence of opinion of where the um, finances of the, the country should be going in individual policies, I'd say, rather than in an overall way. So there was the famous uh, meeting, the think-in at Inchidani in West Cork. Um, I think you were fairly prominent in, in, on that occasion uh, where Father Sean Healy was invited down. Was that seen as sending a deliberate signal to people, we are changing course? Well, the Taoiseach himself would have been the person to select the speakers. He would have chosen Father Sean Healy, knowing exactly what his agenda would have been uh, and what his speech was going to lay out, and that it would be very difficult to reject that. Um, so I think that was the turning point. So in what direction then did you turn? Probably back to the Bertie Ahern direction, which is very much um, on the left of centre. Um, and moving back towards the left of centre rather than at the centre. In other words, going back to looking after the older people, look, going back to social welfare, uh, looking, going back to more vulnerable. And that was his constituency, and that's where the party had always been. But, but McCreevy, as minister, had given substantial increases in child benefit and indeed in the, in the, in the pension. So what was different between McCreevy and Bertie? You know, in fairness, it was probably just presentation rather than actual reality. Um, because in government, Fianna Fáil looked after older people, looked after social welfare, looked after child benefit, um, looked after education. Um, my own ministry, we spent a huge amount of money. I introduced a DESH scheme uh, for disadvantaged areas. Um, and since then, I'm so pleased to say that the progression and the retention in disadvantaged areas uh, has been so, so positive. We ploughed money into children with special needs, particularly integrating those children into mainstream schools with special classes, with special needs assistance. So the social policies were all being invested in. Um, so in fairness to Charlie McCreevy, he gave the money for that as Minister for Finance. I believe the direction came from the Taoiseach in doing it. It was probably a difference of style. 
When Bertie Ahern decided to stand down as leader around Easter 2008, why did he do that? Well, he had been leader, remember, since 1996 at that stage. Um, he had won three elections, which was not quite unheard of, but I mean, certainly a huge achievement. Was probably not going to lead us into the election after that. Uh, and he decided to go on in his own time and not wait for people to push him. Was he pushed? No, I don't believe he was. By Brian Cowan? Whatever conversation there was, one man wouldn't have been enough. Um, so Bertie Ahern was not pushed by the Fianna Fáil party. Or by, for instance, the public reaction to the performance or the ordeal endured in the witness box at the tribunal by uh, one of his secretaries, Grania Carruth. I, I, I don't believe that that actually prompted Bertie to go immediately when he did. Perhaps there would have been an accumulation of issues over the years and he didn't want to get to that because he was never going to lead us into a fourth election. Um, but I do know he did not want us as ministers to be constantly answering questions about him and about his finances. Had it come to that? It had come to that with me when I was at the teachers' conferences at Easter and one of the questions I was asked wasn't about the DESH scheme, the special needs assistance, all of the advancements in education, but I was actually being asked about Bertie Ahern. And he said it to me then that he did not want me as minister or anybody else in the work we were doing to be overshadowed by himself. Which is another way, I suppose, of him saying, I know this is not going to go away. No, it's a way of him saying, I do not want to be in any way responsible for you not being able to do your job. What did you think of Brian Cowan as Taoiseach? Um, I thought Brian was so unfortunate to come in at such a difficult time. I mean, if we thought that was bad, I suppose Micheál Martins is worse now. But it was a very difficult financial time for him. Very able dealer. Very, very able. Um, and moved seamlessly, I think, for, as Minister for Finance um, into being, being Taoiseach. Um, and took the hard decisions when it was really difficult to do. But looking at the you know, what led up to, to, to the earthquake election of 2011. Looking back, and again, we can all have the wisdom of hindsight, wh what do you think were Fianna Fáil's biggest mistakes in government? Um, that last government? Well, if you like, in the period you were in office from 97 to 2011. Um, I think the problem is, from my perspective being in government, I would happily have spent more money, I have to say, because I was in education and I could see the need for it. Um, but it just wasn't there. Um, and I think our biggest mistakes were probably spending too much relying on a source of taxation which wasn't always going to be there. Um, and the money that was coming in from building and that wasn't always going to be there. I, I think that was probably the mistake. It wasn't so much how we spent it, or where we spent it, it was actually reliance on the source of that money. Would you have regrets as well about the level of supervision or non-supervision of the financial institutions? Without a shadow of a doubt, we all gave too much regard and too much respect to the financial institutions. Kept them too far at arm's length. Um, the regulatory system um, I believe now, obviously, wasn't tight enough from a government perspective. Um, and 
that was the difficulty. Tell me about the time that the government found itself having to reach out to external sources. In Morgan Kelly's fra famous phrase, The Economist from UCD, we were dependent on the kindness of strangers, the bailout. It was actually devastating for us as ministers uh, and for the government to have to rely on an international source. Our responsibility as government and as ministers is to spend carefully the money of a country and the money of the taxpayers. And now here we were being told what to do by an international source. Um, that was humiliating. Um, it was a defeat for us. Um, and I, I think it's left a lasting impression on all of us. W would you be referring there to the fact that Fianna Fáil had a reputation, if for nothing else, uh, of competence, knowing how to run the country, as it were. That was a kind of a self-view that was there. And that was shattered. It was certainly shattered in the eyes of the public that we didn't know how to run the country. Um, people, I think, also didn't really understand what the problems were, other than the fact that there was no money. You know, they blamed the government for the banks. They blamed the government for the collapse of the building industry. They blamed the government for everything. In fact, the government wasn't to blame for everything, but we had to take that responsibility. Um, and that has damaged Fianna Fáil since then. What about um, the election of 2011? Can you describe the experience that that was uh, for you on the canvas? I think the temperature was minus 17, standing outside Sandy Cove Dart Station, and the attitudes were colder. It was so, so bitter. Um, I have to say, the organisation were extraordinary. And my personal team were there morning, noon and night because of their belief in me, and, and the same for other candidates around the country. Um, and I really appreciated that. I knew we did everything we could do in that election. I also knew I had worked very hard um, and had delivered nationally and locally, but that didn't matter in that election. Did you give consideration at all to not standing in that election? No, no, I did not. I knew some of my colleagues were, um, but no, absolutely, I was going to run. And I knew I had a fair chance of making it, um, but I didn't but I would never have walked away. For me, it was something that was um, important as a Fianna Fáil minister uh, to be there and to stand up for what we had done in the past. What about Fianna Fáil now, Mary Hannafin? How would you characterise the party in 2022? I think Fianna Fáil now has revived to a great degree. I think Micheál Martin has shown great leadership through very, very difficult times. Uh, I think following the advice of science during the pandemic, and showing his belief in the values of democracy and freedom during the war. Uh, I think that has made him stand out head and shoulders and given a great integrity back uh, to Fianna Fáil. Uh, on the ground, we're very strong with our councillors. Uh, we're strong with the number of women who are getting elected. Um, but we have a big challenge when it comes to a general election. So how do you account for the fact that you did better in the 2016 election, uh, just five years after, uh, after the earthquake election, um, and then you, you went backwards in the 2020 election. You see, for 90 years, Fianna Fáil was in government, or we were in opposition. And we understood both sides of that very, very clearly. When you're in government, you deliver. When you're opposition, you oppose, and you fight, and you argue, and you debate. After the 2016 election, we were neither one thing nor the other. We were neither in government nor in opposition. 
and the public, never mind the Fianna Fáil representatives, didn't know exactly who we were, where we were, or what we stood for. Was it that you had responsibility without power? Um, and we were in opposition without being able to oppose. Um, and we were in semi-almost in government, but not being able to deliver. Uh, so we lost out on both grounds. So how do you see it now? You're in government for the last uh, two years, practically. Um, and if you look at the polls, the party is struggling very badly. See, where we are now is a lot clearer than where we were in 2016, because we know when we're in government and we know uh, when we're in a coalition. Uh, and when the barriers came down to Fianna Fáil going into coalition day one, I think we learned an awful lot from that. Uh, and we learned it over the last 20 years, which has led to good working relationships. So I think when it comes to the next election, that people will see the contribution that we've made to the country um, through the pandemic and through this awful war. Do you think the two parties, Fianna, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, should fight the next election uh, separately or as a government, two government parties seeking re-election? Sean, we're looking at two political parties over the last 100 years since the Civil War. The Civil War hasn't gone away, you know. We're happy to work together, but we are two separate parties, two separate identities, two separate range of policies um, and a history that is not going to be ignored either. There are no circumstances in which Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael could contest the election together. Even though you will have, assuming this thaw lasts a full term, been working together around the cabinet table for five years. It only shows that Fianna Fáil is capable of working with parties who are like-minded and parties who are our polar opposites. And I think the respect that is probably due to Micheál Martin and to the political parties for doing that at a time of great, great need is something that should be reflected on in the next elections. What do you make of the fact that Sinn Féin is well ahead of both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in opinion polls and they look now like the part, they will be the biggest party after the next election? I've long since remembered that it don't always depend on the opinion polls, but I mean, certainly they're riding high at the moment. Um, it happens when you are the main opposition party, um, that you do climb up because you get the opportunities in Dáil uh, to be able to ask questions, to be able to debate, to be able to introduce uh, legislation and to hold government to account. So the main opposition party will always do well. The main opposition party does not always become the main government party. How do you think the next government will be put together? I believe it'll be a coalition again. Um, I think the days of one party government are probably gone for a long time. Um, I think the nature of the public at the moment is that they want to see all of their different interests represented in government. So whether it's the moment that's green and climate change, or whether it is uh, to do with housing and who's going to deliver that, um, I think people will want to see a mix of, and so they will be looking to see who can work best with others? And there is no evidence that Sinn Féin would work with anybody or that anybody would work with Sinn Féin. At the same time, they will have a democratic mandate of whatever extent it's going to be. Do you think, on principle, Fianna Fáil can or should or ought to stay apart from at least discussing the prospect of forming a government with Sinn Féin? I don't believe Fianna Fáil will need Sinn Féin um, because I believe now we've shown that we can work with independence, we can work with the Labour Party, 
we can work with Fine Gael, we can work with the Green Party, and we've proven that now in government. So firstly, we don't need them, and secondly, on principle, I don't believe we should. Looking at government actions over the last seven, eight years, or more, I'm thinking more on the social issues now, we had the marriage equality referendum in 2015. Uh, in 2018, we had the amendment uh, to the Constitution, the Eighth Amendment removed. There is now legal abortion available in Ireland. What was your own view of those, those campaigns? Well, my father, of course, had been chairman of the anti-abortion campaign um, all, all his life, really. Um, and that being such a very difficult, very sensitive issue, um, and it was his campaign. I never actually got involved in the campaigns, um, but held my own very strong private views on them. Um, certainly on the abortion, I was very saddened um, to see abortion come in. Um, that's a, just a matter of principle for me. Um, but I totally respect the very, very sad and tragic stories that we heard as well. What did you think of Michal Martin, well in advance of the referendum on abortion, deciding that he, he was changing his position, that he was now in favour of removing the eighth? Yeah, at the time, I was sorry that Fianna Fáil took that stance. Um, for him, it was probably a courageous decision. I wouldn't have made that decision, but he did. Um, but a lot of the public followed as well. Um, so maybe he was tapped into the mood of the nation in a way that I wouldn't have been at the time. Um, but he was proven right. Now, the question is asked, if he hadn't taken that decision, would people have gone in a different direction? I think probably not, because I think social issues like that are more personal than political. For a long number of years, and certainly when the previous referenda uh, were taking place in, in the 80s, Fianna Fáil was generally seen to be on the side of the bishops um, in, a, in a tacit way opposing uh, the referendum on divorce and also a lot of your, 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 your party members would have been involved in a very direct way with the abortion referendum in, in 83. How do you see that relationship now as between the Fianna Fáil party and the Catholic Church? I don't believe there is a relationship between Fianna Fáil and the Catholic Church. I don't believe there's a relationship between any political party and the Catholic Church. And I think the fact that the Church has had its own difficulties uh, that they have had to grapple with uh, and continue to grapple with, I think there is that, that divergence there now. Um, we see that divergence coming in education, uh, more diversity coming in, the Catholic schools being divested uh, to different bodies, and that's just one aspect. Uh, you see it in the hospitals as well, where it's an issue. So we're very definitely seeing the separation of church and state. Has society gone ahead of the Fianna Fáil party where these issues are concerned? No, I think when you ask people what they want of Fianna Fáil and what they want of a government, they don't talk about divorce or abortion um, or religious issues. They want a house. They want a way of living. They want a good job. Uh, they want to know that people who are very disadvantaged or who are homeless are going to be looked after. They want Fianna Fáil to deliver on the everyday issues that are important to them and to their families.